see things differently, but then are the importance with which we give that subjectivity varies among person to person. It's what we're talking about because, you know, it's this idea we're seeing things differently, but how important is that? And you might say, well, it means everything to humankind or something. It's like, well, then you need to ask how important is humankind? I, I'm just, I'm not saying humankind's that important. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I'm trying no, to like, And I, I totally agree with you. And, and, and so, you know, now we go into these <clears throat> much bigger. Just, uh, just uh, forgive me. I think the thing that fueled that thought is I was at, uh, I was at a museum fundraiser last uh, two a couple of weeks ago and i spoke to the guy like the head genius like of one of the most <laughs> right the most prominent museum what he says on his name tag right exactly <laughs> one of the one of the the world's most prominent museums and so i was asking him some questions because how often do you uh, you know uh, although i did talk to stephen hawking once but like, how often do you get someone that smart? So I was asking him questions and um, I said, uh, I said, is it too late for the planet? Is what I asked him. He said, mm. it's probably not too late for the planet, but it might be too late for us. It might be too late for humankind, but it's not probably too late for the, the planet can rebound, yeah. <laughs> but it's our species might not. <laughs> and that got me thinking about this hierarchy of importance and meaning behind things. Anyway, forgive me. But, I but no, it's, it's a good point because it, it uh, where I was going to go there was this understanding that we have, you know, this, this deeply philosophical question. Um, I am not a, a lot of the superhero movies don't really do it for me, but uh, in the latest series of all those, there was the character called Thanos. And you may know who Thanos is, but Thanos mythology or from or no, this is this is in the superhero movie. Oh, I didn't see no, no, I really <laughs> right. But but the concept is that you know you've got Iron Man and you've got you know you've got the Hulk and you've got Captain America and all these superheroes, right, who are doing good things in the world, and then you've got Thanos, who is this horrible uh, dictatorial, destructive creature who is traveling the universe wiping out planets and wiping out um the life on that planet and it and i never saw the final one but the one before i saw part of it and it's the it's this thanos speech and you suddenly see a very different look at it and it's this eugenics mentality of um wiping out that we have we've done we as in uh not just humans but other aliens have, have, have just done so much destruction that we've actually got to reduce the population by half and he needs this yeah. glove that will wipe will just people will just disappear like 50 percent will randomly disappear so 50 percent of all populations will randomly disappear so that we can start treating the universe better so you suddenly get this incredibly evil character that you've watched through, a, I think it's like a series of five movies, who is dark and horrible. And, and then you suddenly, and you see this moment when he is able to destroy half of all life on all, in the universe. And he sits by a tree 
and he just relaxes and he's and and he, and he and he gets this peace about him because he feels like he's done his good and so you know it's really uh, and i love those kinds of questions because we're back to that philosophical uh, moral argument around what is important you know so uh, there's there's a I'm sure you're familiar or maybe you're not um, a conspiracy theory um, do you know what the Georgia stones are no okay so this is an interesting subject for anybody to look, go look at go research the Georgia stones and you'll find these stones they're like a modern architectural uh, uh, not a Stonehenge, but modern, right? But they've got writing on them and nobody knows who wrote it. Apparently, nobody's ever owned it. And they talk about wiping out the planet down to, I think it's 1.6 billion. Uh, and it talks all about this it's in Georgia, right? And it talks about the need to do that in order to cleanse the planet. Uh, and that, you know, so the conspiracy theory is that people like... Uh, the most powerful people in the world, like Bill Gates and, um, and others like that, are part of this, that they're actually trying to do things to shrink the population down. And, you know, so there's a whole conspiracy theory with it that I'm not saying is right or wrong, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with it. I'm just putting it forward for people to consider because in that conversation is this same moral issue, which is... You know, you see it in the bad guy movies. We got to get rid of all these people so that we can be good again. We got to get rid of all the Jews so that the pure people, being the Nazis, can can rule the planet. We got to, you know, the ethnic cleansing um, argument is the same argument, uh, and the you know we we're, we're you know we're going to be at nine billion people on this planet pretty damn soon. We're moving towards that, and we can't feed the people who are on the planet and we've got the 1% versus the 99% and all those kinds of things. And this is like that argument of, well, what is important? If you're going to save 50% of the people, which 50%? Do you save the geniuses? Well, some of the geniuses have got terrible physical genes. Stephen Hawking, you mentioned, right? Okay. So you save the, the mind, but the body's a piece of crap. Okay. Well, that's no good. So do you save the beautiful people? Well, some of the beautiful people are assholes or they're dumb. Or do you save the kind and caring people? Yeah, but they're weak. I mean, there's all these counter arguments and I'm not saying any of those things are true, but these are just counter arguments. Uh, you know, do we save all the artists? Well, you know, they don't know how to, they don't know how to actually add to society. They just make us think differently. You know, do you save the literary people? They make you, they're philosophical. They make you think, or do you save the politicians? Do you save the people with the money? Because they know how to create more. I mean, it's just, it's a wonderfully deep conversation around the importance and where we stack it. And we always will stack it in our favor. <laughs> objective bias right so you know as far as you and i are concerned that's philosophical... what you didn't say should we save the podcasters <laughs> the podcasters uh the writers right. <laughs> you know so it's it's a, it's a very interesting thing because that the way we look at everything is based on our bias and this is why for me this is the fascination for me it is 
is examining bias. When I go into a company, it's one of the questions I ask the, the team is, how do we breach your bias? And they go, I don't know. I go, do you know what your bias is? And they go, no. I go, you're right. You don't. That's the whole thing with a bias. You don't know until somebody elicits it, elicits it from you. And then you can say, oh, yeah, I do. I see the world that way. But, but is that the right way? Related to that, I was reading a book by uh, the late consultant Jerry uh, Weinberg yesterday. He, he had been a computer consultant. And uh, he talked about he talked about how organizations bring in outside consultants in order to solve problems, although the organization sometimes doesn't, um, they're assuming they have a certain problem. And so they bring someone in to solve this problem. And whether they have the problem or not, by bringing in this outsider whose specialty is that problem, now kind of solidifies or sears that problem into the organization, even as they're trying to solve it. Because, right, the, the diagnosis may have been wrong in the first place. But now everyone is focused on that problem. It's all about that problem. Um, yeah, it, again, another thing uh, it reminds me of, um, uh, a, a wonderful consultant writer, uh, Jeff Bellman, uh, in Seattle, uh, he had said, he had said in a book of his, um, he said something like, I used to be that I used to work inside an organization and I may be slightly off on this. He said, I used to work in an organization as as the head of HR and training. He said, now that I no longer, uh, and so if there was a problem in an organization, I would always see it as a problem of training. He said, now that I no longer do training, I no longer see things that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's and what you're saying. It's exactly the point. We, we, we approach everything in our subjective bias and and i and you know this is the the in many ways the uh, one of the central premises of this show is that we're looking at people through our through our own subjective bias so we look at Donald well, how, did, how does that help us like well, what how, it, evolutionary uh, oh, uh benefit of it oh well, the the evolutionary benefit of it is that uh the ego requires things to stay the same because same equals safe. So if it's the same, it's safe. So if you look like my dad and I have a problem with my dad and my dad was horrible to me, I'm best distance myself from you because you look like my dad because that's going to keep me safe. Even though you've never met my dad, even though you may be a completely different personality, but the fact that you're six one and you have a mustache and you have that color blue eyes and you've got a kind of this unique sort of twitchy thing about your face that reminds me of my dad, my brain says, oh, dad, stay away, dangerous. So my bias has now created a distance that is completely ridiculous to the rational logical mind. But it doesn't matter because as you and I have talked about before, emotional logic is far more powerful in determining our behaviors than rational logic. It will always step in because it's about trying to survive. Right, right. And in emotional logic, your concept of emotional logic, 
which you once said to me as two plus two equals giraffe, which I yes. always remember. Um, is emotional logic, uh, it, is it actually true logic or it's really, it, it, it's, just, it's a reframe of emotion, of thinking through emotion. Is there any true logic involved in it? Well, okay, so then you, okay, so let, let's just, so I'm going to put it back on you for a moment and say, okay, define true logic. Oh, I, you know, um, it's this, it's this, I don't even know how to describe it, this, chron I've never studied the definition. It's this chronological, uh, uh, it's using a certain principle and that principle stays steady that if you if you continue to use that same principle in a steady way that that things happen predictably based upon that principle there you go predictably so emotional logic is incredibly logical because it's predictive that's the whole purpose of emotional logic it is predictive so if i continue down this road and i'm in a relationship with this person i will get hurt how do I know? Because this person appears to be just like my dad. Oh. Are they like your dad? No, but it's predictive. That's the whole problem with it is it's predicting something, but predictions are 99% wrong. I mean, you know, Jesus, you don't, have, you don't have to be psychic Sue to know that this don't always work out. And if you're not sure, here's the, here's the way to look at it. How many times, not you personally, Mark, but any of us, have we fallen in love with the right one only to discover it's the wrong one, right? It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. When there's biology involved, there's psychology involved, there's a whole bunch of things. So here's something I learned recently that I found really fascinating, because as you know, I've done a lot of work and a lot of research into relationships. I'm fascinated by relationships and how we come together and what is it that pulls us? What is it that made you and I friends in our first conversation and we've remained friends ever since? you know, there's no reason for that in a logical sense. So and I'm like, oh, I'm always interested in like, what is that dynamic? But particularly interested in a, in a um, romantic sense, what is it that pulls people together? And, you know, so I talk about um, personal emotional resonance fields and what's in that field and how it pulls to us from, from a morphogenetic sense in quantum physics. But also there's a biological thing. So we know about things like pheromones. And that's pretty interesting stuff if you dig into that. But here's what I found out the other day. Most of us now, and you know a little bit about this too, most of us are becoming aware of this thing called the gut biome, right? The, the stomach biome, this, this what's going on in there, all the microbiomes that are going on. The, the viruses and the bacteria and all these amazing creatures that are all part of what keeps our gut healthy. And we think about that because it's mucosal, right? That there's a mucus in there and the, all those creatures live in the mucus. And, and when you have a, uh, when you have a leak in your gut, it's a leak in the mucus, which allows toxins to pour into the bloodstream. So that's all pretty fascinating. But then I, then I was having this conversation with with a physician and of course there is therefore anywhere there's mucus there's a microbiome so the microbiome in your nose in your ears in your vagina in your mouth not in your vagina of course mark but it's possible uh, <laughs> but all the so here's what's interesting about it 
is that when two lovers kiss and they have a real kiss, the microbiome in the mouth of this person and the microbiome of, in the mouth of this person come together. And if the microbiome of this person rejects this person or vice versa, they go, I don't know, there's just something not right. And they walk away. Isn't that fascinating? Like I was like- I didn't know, I didn't know anything about this. I don't know this microbiome, you know. It's fascinating. So, so at a biological level, we say no to a partner if the biome doesn't match, if the, if the bacteria in your system is not going to work with the like bacteria. The if you don't like their mucus, it's over. Right. Yeah, it's over. And, and I, I remember having a conversation with a very good friend of mine. He said, you know, he, he went out on a date with this girl and he was telling us about it. He's telling my wife and I about this. He says, I went on a date. He says, oh my God, she was so hot. He goes, and I kissed her and he goes, I just like, oh. And I said, well, what, was she a bad kisser? He goes, no, she was a good kisser. He goes, it was just something not right. And I, and I had this conversation with my wife the other day because that's 15 years ago. And I went, oh, that's what it was. The microbiome in her, in her mouth didn't match his, and he was like, I'm out. So Cupid's arrow was made of mucus is what you're trying exactly. to tell Exactly. <laughs> right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, so far we've talked about mucus, Nazis, and pancakes. What do we speak about next? Or we've covered <laughs> that. that was, you asked me what were the three things I wanted to talk about, and I think we covered them. I said, right? Mucus, Nazis, and pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> Preferably um, a Nazi cook making pancakes while blowing his nose, apparently. <laughs> Which now nobody's going to nobody's going to IHOP ever again. We just put IHOP out of business. Right. <laughs> oh my God, that is good. That is really fantastic. Yeah. So tell me, who is someone that you you might disagree with that you, you oh. that you find fascinating? Is there somebody like it in the? You know, in 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 the in general, it might be somebody you know personally that we don't know, but but it, you know, somebody that you find fascinating that you don't necessarily agree with. It's just like, wow, this is a really interesting individual. Yeah, um, I to answer it, it could a, be a historical quick, figure too, by the way. Right, I was going to say to to uh, well, so growing up, I've always loved writing. I have a degree in writing. When I was a kid, uh, I was a huge sports fan. So a lot, you know, I, I grew up in the, I was born in 1962. So growing up in late 60s, early 70s, you know, my sports heroes were, I grew up in Flushing, New York. Tom Seaver, you know, Ed Cranepool, people on the Mets, you know, New York Mets types. But along with those people, Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And so that's how much I liked writing. By the way, the reason why I liked Edgar Allan Poe so much is my, my brother, my sister, I think, was reading The Telltale Heart or The Premature Burial or something in junior high school. And she read it to me or she told me about it. And remember, this is like 1972. And, and like they were doing cool things like walling up people alive. You know, like, you know, like these things. 
and back. I guess then, your definition of cool things in yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but so, so no, but back then you didn't. The books that that you had, like I didn't know that there was such a thing. If there was such a thing as like young adult literature, mm-hmm. that was something that I don't I don't know if it existed back then. I'm not sure that it did. Maybe early on you had S.E. Hinton, you had people like that in the 70s. But when I'm talking about, I don't know that young adult uh, uh, literature. So I couldn't find, uh, so I had to jump from, from, you know, C-spot run to what, there was no intermediary step. So I had to jump straight to adult books. Straight to Poe. It gave me the thrill of like, you know, this horror stuff or this sci-fi stuff that I thought was really cool because there was no intermediary steps back then, right? So that was very, so uh, certain authors and especially very advanced authors for someone my age, I really loved because I, you know, I couldn't find anyone else. And so the reason why I'm saying all this is uh, I haven't read them in many decades, but when you ask me those questions, so when I was a teenager and, and in my 20s or so, there were a lot of authors who I liked, uh, but who were anti-Semitic. Mm. In other words, if they knew me, they would not like me, mm-hmm. like Celine or T.S. Eliot or, you know, like Pound, Ezra Pound, like there were certain authors who, you know, you know, who, you know, uh, like outwardly espoused hatred so uh, did you did you like when but, but i those, still liked uh parts of their work not the parts where where, where they were well, that's what i was going to say in reading their stuff did you was it was it clear that they were anti-semitic in reading their work yeah 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 right because I, so I don't lean, know if you read some stand on street corners and hand out pamphlets yeah no but i'm just like i'm wondering so so what was it? So that's a great example. So, you know, here you are, a Jewish kid, late, Levy gives the name away. Um, right. So you're a Jewish kid and finding the, the, uh, the, these particular writers and authors to be intriguing. Do you remember if there was any sort of struggle with that within you of, you know, like, I like this person's work. I, I, I'm intrigued by them, but their philosophy is anti-Semitic. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there was more. It was more just a disappointment. Oh. I mean, I, I know that. that uh, um, because remember, also back then, you know. Now I'm talking about like the late '70s or like yeah. 1980, so or the early '80s or whatnot. Um, um, uh, there was less, there was less rebellion. Mm-hmm. There was less of, see now if something like that was happening, I'd yeah. be straight on, you know, social media, you know, you know, there'd be millions of people backing me up back then. The persons, be, the people being backed up were the famous writers. So it was more like, oh, they write some cool stuff this part is very unfortunate. I'm disappointed. I can't truly love them because they would despise me if they knew me. And I would just go on to the next thing. So, that, it, well, yeah. yeah, but that's, that's really interesting to me because 
you you didn't get caught you you didn't get caught in in that facet of them no no i was able to take what it was that i found good in who they were and use what what i thought was good you know i learned about story from them i mean not t.s Eliot so much but you know like beautiful language i learned about story i learned some really interesting ideas and I was able to take those ideas and use those ideas. I was able to pick among what I liked and didn't like about them. And um, uh, it reminds me of something else that I find uh, interesting. Did you? Well, I just want to say that this right there, Mark, you have nailed down the premise of this show. Because as I talked to you about before, you know, when I looked at, you know, I have all these deep conversations with so many people, as you know, and, and I'm often asked, how do we solve the problem in the world? And my answer is, we have to listen to and learn from people we disagree with. Right. Beautiful. Right. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's exactly That's right. exactly what it is. We have to listen to and learn from people we disagree with. And, and in order to do that, we have to be willing to move things to the side. We have to be willing to say, <clears throat> okay, I don't agree with that. Um, but do I hate this person now automatically or do I immediately diss everything they're saying? And the answer is no. Like, you know, you may not like Steve Bannon as an example because he was the Trump advisor and Breitbart and all the rest of it. But go look up at his stuff around the, his understanding of China's economic process and how they're building that economics. And he's a freaking genius around it. Like the guy is... You don't have to agree with who he is. You don't have to agree with his, with his politics, but the guy's understanding of some things is spectacular. Spectacular. You know, so it's this willingness to, to pull things apart a little bit and go, instead of we, we want to seem to, you know, today, I think because we, we move so fast, we want to glob everything together and go, okay, no, that's not for me. As opposed to what's in here. What, you know, like it's for me, it's this recipe of, uh, you know, I pick up this meal and I eat it and go, ugh, I don't like that. Instead of saying, hold on a second, tell me the ingredients. Right. And you tell me ingredients, oh, I like that. I like that. Oh, I love that. Love that. Oh, I, I hate this. It's got mustard in it. I dislike mustard. Okay. Can, can this be made without mustard? Oh, sure. It can be made with this. Oh, so maybe I don't dislike it. Maybe I don't, I don't like an element that is flavoring it. And I now see the whole thing as that flavor. And I think that that's how we're approaching people. That's the freaking problem. So the fact that you were able to do that with these anti-Semitic authors and, and as somebody who would become, you know, a, a, a world-class writer, you were able to dissect and, and pull out the delicious morsels from each of those recipes that well, they would it, put forward. It's funny the, that you say that because even when you called them anti-Semitic authors, I don't think of them that way. Right. And so backing up your premise, like that really kind of shocked me when you said it right that. I don't think of them as, in, I think of them as great authors who I love like 80% of the stuff that they did. 
or so, right? So, like when you said that- The great authors who happen to be anti-Semitic rather than the other way around. That, uh, uh, you know, and some more than others, you know, know, but, but, uh, yeah, I, I take the parts that are great and I, I applaud those, you know, and the other stuff to me is kind of, uh, is, you know, unfortunate. But, but it, it's really to this point that, that we need to all come back to. You don't have to love absolutely everything. I think we approach relationships that way.